If you would, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We are in a uh, three-part series in the Gospel of John, 15. And so we're going to be really looking at this uh, chapter and trying to unpack what it has for us. So, one thing you could do in preparation for next week is actually read John 15. Uh, Study it. See what you find out uh, in the last few verses that are left there that we haven't dealt with. And see what comes to your mind in your own study. There's nothing better than studying the Word of God yourself, for yourself. It's one thing to listen to what people say about the Word. But it's a whole different experience to actually uncover it for yourself. And, uh, and I would encourage you to do that as we are reading through and preaching through John 15. Now, let, we're going to begin reading here in verse 12. Notice these words, John 15, 12, and we're going to go to 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word your precious word to us. Lord, it is not a mute word, for the one who inspired these words lives within us, has been given to us. So as has already been prayed this morning, you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit says we pray in your most holy name. Amen. Thinking, as I shared with the, uh, with, the, with the children just a moment ago, about a map. Sometimes on a map, it looks very simple to get to point, from point A to point B. Especially if you're looking at a map of, say, the Sipsi or the Amicalola Falls, where I happened to be when I was uh, starting the Appalachian Trail. And uh, Justin and I were there. And it said, hey, you go from here to there to get to the top of Blood Mountain. And I said, oh, that doesn't even look like it's very far. But as you really started studying the map, it has all these squiggly lines on it, right? You're like, what are all those squiggly lines? Why why is the road doing this number? Switching back and forth, switching back and forth. And you learn very, very quickly that on a map, it seems fairly easy to get from point A to point B. But in reality, boots on the ground, for instance, it's, uh, it's a different story. And we find this, I find this often in God's Word, don't you? If God's Word is truly our map, it does have a lot of squiggly lines, doesn't it? And our lives are made of switchbacks. You don't know what a switchback is. It's so 
steep up. There's no way to go straight up. You have to go sideways up the mountain like this. And that's how I feel sometimes. Don't you, in life, climbing life's mountains, you go back and forth, back and forth. You feel like you're not getting anywhere. You sure can't see the top. Now, you can see the top on your map, but not when boots are on the ground. Life is tough sometimes to obey what Jesus has given to us, what the map is showing. And, 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 and I think today, in this passage, chapter 15, again, these few verses in 12 through 17 are very difficult to live out for us. In other words, it sounds easy, love one another. It's one of the most basic things all of us could tell each other about Christianity. What's Christianity about? Loving one another. I think all of us would give that answer if pressed sooner or later. And yet, it's also one of the most difficult things to do. Love one another. And yet it's a command. Now last week we talked about the first part of chapter 15 and I just want to remind you that this is Jesus' last night with his disciples. This is it. He's not, he knows. He knows. They don't. He knows he's not going to physically be with them anymore starting once he gets arrested. He's already told them this, but they hadn't gotten it. He's indicated it. He's prophesied it. At least three times he tells them, I've got to go to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect. But they don't get it. I wouldn't have got it had I been there. And so he does exactly this on this night. He tells them the most important thing he can tell them. I mean, this, imagine, imagine your last few hours of your life. I don't think you're going to watch it, you know, wasted away binging Netflix. I just don't think that's going to happen. You're going to spend it with people you love. You're going to try to call people you love. I've read so many different testimonies of people who were on their deathbed. They all say the same thing, and that is, I wish I'd have loved more. I wish I'd have forgiven. I wish I'd have been kinder to my mom. I, would, I wish I wouldn't have mistreated my dad. Nobody comes to the end of their life saying they wish they'd have sinned more. They wish they would have drank it up and drank away their life. No, we know there's no posterity in those kinds of activities. But love, love lasts forever. Because the scripture says this, God does not just do love, he is love. And so his commandment to us is very clear. This is my commandment, (laughs) that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, Jesus is the best kind of leader, and the best kind of leader never takes his followers where he hasn't gone himself. In other words, the best kind of leader leads in the front. Leads because they've been there. And he says, I want you to love other people just like I have loved you. And boy, that is hard to do. That is being, there's no better way to be Christ-like 
than by loving one another. That is the epitome of what it means to be Christ-like. Now, uh, we've got some artwork here, and we had some last week that I put together. I used to go to these conferences, and they would have breakout sessions, and then they'd have a plenary session. And I'd be like, what is a plenary session? It's an odd word, right? Well, it actually is a word that comes from Latin, meaning fool. And what a plenary session is, is everybody's got to be there. In other words, if, if you're at a conference, and they call for a plenary session, that means... Everybody's supposed to be at this one. You're not supposed to break up into groups or anything like that. If they call a Congress plenary, then all the members have to be there. That's the point of a plenary. And what I'm saying here is, in Jesus' mind, he gave his keynote speech, right? Last week, I was calling it his keynote speech, which is abide in me. It all comes down to abiding. If you don't do that, then you've not done anything. But now he gives this plenary. In other words, he rallies his disciples and says, look, If you're going to be a Christian, everybody has to do this. Love one another. You can't be a Christian without loving one another. In other words, Jesus is saying this, it's the only game in town. There is no other game that we are a part of as Christians than to love one another. That's it. That Jesus will himself even say when he's pressed, when they're trying to trick him, he'll say love fulfills all the other commandments that are written. They all come down to love. What's fascinating is in our lectionary readings, I don't often, I mean, I rarely look ahead to actually read the lectionary readings weeks out when I'm preparing, for instance, like a series like this that I've been working on a month in advance. But it just so happened that today, in our lectionary reading, was from Leviticus 19. And there's that jewel in Leviticus 19 where he's giving some more instruction. I am the Lord. More instruction. I am the Lord. And then he says this. Love your neighbor. (laughs) And then Jesus will pick it up, won't he? And didn't he? In our own reading. And he says, look, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. But I say to you. Forgive your enemy and pray for those who would despitefully use you. I did a series of share uh, of talks on uh, Islam for my dad's church, and I ended I ended with, uh, with uh, last week with this thought, and that is: imagine the different leaders of the world's religions, the founders of the world's religions being put on a cross like Jesus was, what would their last words be? Now, maybe you've not studied those guys before, but I have. I've actually read some of their stuff. I've read what their followers would say. I know what the religion is typically about in general. Again, I'm no expert, but I I know in general what they believe. And I guarantee you there is not a founder of any of the world's religions that would, from a cross, naked as they're dying, say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm telling you, there's not one. Not even on the first point of calling God Father. That'd be problematic in itself. Much less forgiving these humans who are doing this to God. That's absurd. In most religions, that is absolutely 
absurd. Not in Christianity, though. It is the name of the game because, again, at base, for all members of Christianity, our mission is to love one another. So what is this thing of love? Well, you know, without going into some kind of definition of love, because have you ever noticed in trying to define love, you destroy love? Just like if you've ever, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I went as a boy, I'd love to go back. I remember looking across there and being like, wow, that's a big canyon. That's a big hole in the ground right there. That's a lot of colors, neat thing. I mean, I saw a storm miles and miles away that was lightning down. I mean, it was just, what, had you have asked me, describe to me the Grand Canyon. Oh, I'd botch it all up. You ever notice that? Big events, beautiful experiences, we can never distill it down into some cheap definition. It never is enough, is it? I would say to you this, if if you're married, if you have a best friend, if somebody asks you, describe for me Jessica. Well, she's loving, she's kind, she wants everybody to get along, she takes care of her children, she takes care of me. But I could continue to talk for 10 years and you're never going to truly experience Jessica in a definition or in words or in a book. It's not going to be enough. It tr- At the end of the day, I would just have to tell you, look, if you really want to know Jessica, you're going to have to meet her. And when you meet her, it'll all make sense. Isn't that what the Bible's calling us to? The Bible gives us enough to say, look, You've got to meet this God that would do this. I can tell you about it. We can keep going on and on. But you've got to go to him yourself and experience his love for yourself. His forgiveness for yourself. His grace, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness. And when you experience it for yourself, there's no way... You can keep it in. It's not the nature of love, is it? It truly is not. If you love something, you're going to tell people about it. You love your favorite team, you're going to talk about it. People are going to know. You love your spouse, you're going to talk about them. You love your best friend, you're going to talk about them. You say, man... It was so awesome, this road trip that we took and this and that. You love being in nature. You're going to talk about it. And in the same way, if we've truly experienced God's love, how can we keep that in? Honestly, how can we keep it to ourselves? I'll tell you this. If you keep it to yourself, it'll die. If you keep it to yourself, it'll become rotten, spoiled. Just like you say, oh, this is the best gallon of chocolate milk I've ever had. I'm just going to store it in the refrigerator because it's so good. Yeah, good luck with that. It's not going to be good in three weeks. And neither will our love for God if we keep it to ourselves. One of our small groups is actually doing a study on how to share God's love with others. I think that's a beautiful thing, and I appreciate anyone who would look into how can we engage people for the sake of God. 
for the sake of his gospel? How can we walk across the room, walk across the street, walk into our neighborhood? Social scientists are telling us over and over again. These are secularist social scientists and they're saying this. They're saying we need community more than ever before. You say, hey, there's 8 billion people now. We have more people than ever in these big cities. There's people everywhere. You're bumping into them. You can't even go anywhere without people. And yet people feel more alone today than in rural America where you knew roughly 150 people. They feel alone. No one's having a meal with them. They don't know that someone truly loves them. What a great opportunity for the church. What a great opportunity for my neighborhood. You see, as I've been studying John 15, God's really been been saying, hey, big guy, (laughs) you know, you're not... You're not doing some of this. And I start with the justifications. and guys, Listen, listen, we're done with that. We're beyond that. I want your heart to change towards people. How many opportunities do I miss to speak a word for God? And I remain silent. You see, when we love, we don't have to have a definition of love. Every single one of us knows what love looks like, what it feels like, without having to get some collegiate dictionary out to define it. We know it. We know it. (laughs) And when we love, it's going to cost us our time. We're going to give our time to whatever it is we love. People that love hunting will get up super early in the morning to go hunting or fishing. Or shopping, right? You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I spent last night in an aquarium <laughs> under, underneath 600,000 gallons of seawater, actually. And, uh, and I had this nice view from the Tennessee Aquarium. And you say, why would you, why would you go on a trip, a short trip like that, and have to wake up at you know, 5 o'clock in the morning to come back home, take a shower, and quickly come to church this morning? Why I would do this is because I give my son... Time, because my time is my life, and I love my son, and I give him my life. If we love God, we'll give him our time. We will. It's not something we have to work up. I enjoy spending time. When, you know, this whole trip, because I, I was, didn't want to do it, honestly. I really didn't. I know it sounds cool, but sleeping on the floor, a floor that everybody's walked on all day long, no, not, not my thing, really, you know. Um, and yet, last night, before we went to bed, I said, I said, buddy, you want to sleep over there where Harrison's going to be sleeping? He said, no, I want to sleep by you, Daddy. Made it all worth it. My oldest son, he doesn't say stuff like that all the time. <laughs> um, especially to me. <laughs> Might say to Mom, but not me. To have him say, I want, to, I want you to sleep right here by this little window where we can look in here and watch the fish tonight. Hey, that made it worthwhile. That's something I'm not going to easily forget. And it's because I gave him my time. Love will get your time. <laughs> It'll also get your talents. It'll get what you have to offer. In other words, I give my talents to God and he multiplies it. You give your talent. You say, what do I need to do in the church? What God has already gifted you with. 
Truly. Everybody has gifts, skill sets, things they learn at work and things they learned in school and things that you're just naturally good at. Give that to God. And we're seeing that in our church. Thank you for those of you who have stepped up and you're using your gifts to fill in the gaps. And trust me, there are many gaps that need to be filled even now in our church. And in filling those things and finding your place in the body, how do you offer your love to the body of Christ, to the temple of God? Um, just ask your friends what you're good at. Uh, don't, don't, some people think, oh, yeah, I'm good at this, but mm, not, not so much, right? I mean, you ever seen an American Idol? And stuff? I don't watch that show, but, but I've seen those people on there when they do the commercial, you know, they're singing and you're like, why didn't somebody tell them they can't sing? Good night, right? Um, you know, also love, love will increase when we forget about ourselves. So in other words, <laughs> this whole thing of, of loving others only happens when we can forget about ourselves. We will love as God loves when we forget about self. Paul talks about self in a very unique way in his, in, his, in his epistles. We don't have time to unpack it, but he talks about it in a very peculiar way, which is dealing with ultimately the sin nature that's in us. The thing that says, I want to protect myself. I will hide myself from you so that I can present myself on social media in this way. Isn't this what our first parents were doing, Adam and Eve, when they went and hid in the bushes? When they tried to make a covering for themselves from the bushes. God says, no, it's not going to work. It's going to cost the life of an animal to cover your sin. And it did for thousands of years until finally it cost God, his son, Jesus, his life to cover our sin. And yet, even today, we, we try to hide from each other. We try to hide from God. We put a nice picture on Facebook, and we want people to think of us in a particular way. Or maybe at work, we present ourselves in a certain way. Maybe even at the house, we're playing a game. It's time to drop the facade, lay the mask down. Let's get real with each other, real with God, that's what family does. And that's what love and loving one another is all about. And you know what? I just have to say, I'm so, so very proud of our church that we have people here that truly love one another. Not a knock against other churches at all. I love other churches. I love what's going on there. And I can, I can securely say, praise God about what's happened there. But I can tell you, there's people here that if you will let them, they'll walk alongside you in this Christian life in prayer and in deed. They will physically walk with you to the hospital, to pray with you, to a meeting with you. I know these people. I, I've experienced it myself. Our family is the beneficiary of you loving one another. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you. In this room right now, as I look around and scan the audience, there's so much love for one another. And I would say this to us, 
And that is, just as Paul said to, to the Thessalonians, let your love then increase more and more. In other words, you know, when you're really, when you're really hitting a stride, don't let up. Don't pull off the gas. Push it. I like to do that sometimes, you know. Just push it. Keep it held down all the way to the floor. Let's really speed this thing up and let our love increase. We're not going to get a ticket for that. Let our love increase more and more. You see, we all, we all have a vineyard. Every single one of us have a vineyard where we grow things. Where we plant seeds at work. Where we spend our time is our vineyard. Some of us have an expanded vineyard. I mean, it's a huge network. But some of us, it may be isolated down, for instance, with a teenager. It may be a room and a few possessions and our friends at school. But you know what? The scripture says this. Even what, when you have just a little bit, God is going to judge us by what we have and not what we don't have. In other words... Don't wish your life away. I wish I had this. I wish I had a bigger network. I wish I had more stuff to be responsible for. Don't do that. Be responsible for what you do have. And God will bless you to have more. This is what he promises. What are we planting in that vineyard? Some of us, we're focusing on our work or this or that. And we've neglected the people who are right under our nose. Right under the same roof as us. I want to give you a warning too that, that, uh, that I think is a great warning as we come upon Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent, and that is technology is a great thing. We're using it this morning, you know, lights, camera, action. But it's also a very dangerous thing. It's a huge responsibility. When you hold a phone in your hand, it may seem just like a ho-hum device, but it's not. If an ancient person saw what you can do on a phone, they would think you were a god. I guarantee, according to some of the tribal religions, they'd, they'd bow down and worship you. Talking to somebody from thousands of miles away, they'd be on their face. But this is a responsibility. And some of us have been duped. Some of us have been chained to technology. And Lent, fasting, is a great time to break the chains. To cut off some things in our own life that don't need to be there. To delete. To erase. I came across a great quote the other day as I was, I was, I was listening to a secular social scientist talk about the loneliness in our world. And he said this. He said, love people... And not things. Use things and not people. I think that's worth repeating. Love people, not things. Use things, but not people. As long as you can use this as a tool, that's fine. But if this becomes your life, if technology, media, the news, whatever, movies, Netflix, become your life, I would say to you, 40 days, cut it off. Whatever it is in your life, cut it off for 40, unplug it for 40 days. 
Now, if secular society is warning us against technology, my goodness, in the church we need to wake up and say, if we haven't got this thing down about loving one another, loving the people that God has given to us, well, we need to really... I mean, it's, it's great to keep up with what's going on in South Korea, North Korea, whatever, even in a different place in the United States. But what about in your own vineyard? You're not going to be judged about what's happening in North Korea. You don't live there. But you will be judged for living here in Huntsville, Madison, Athens, Decatur. You'll be judged for what you do here, for your neighbors that are next door to you, for your coworkers. These are the things that we are responsible for. God has literally entrusted us with those people, with our family. It's not our choosing always, but it's God's choosing. You did not choose me. I chose you. He chose you to be with those people. I believe that. And I think it's our responsibility to live a life that becomes the good news. I love the liturgy for baptism that we had last week, right? I I charged the parents that were there. Live a life that becomes the gospel. Become good news for people. I think it's a great... How do you do that? Love one another. You see how this comes back full circle? It's all love one another. It is our plenary session. Everybody's got to do it, in other words. It's the task that we all have to do. Not everybody's going to be preaching. Not everybody's going to be teaching. Not everybody's going to be singing. Not everybody's going to be serving in the same way. But we all must love one another. I don't know who Mae West is. Some of you may know her. Um, Here's a great quote. Um, Forgive me. I I know that some will and some won't. but, But here's a great quote that I came across, okay? You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. Hey, I like that. I don't know if she lived a great life or not, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. You know what? We, only, we truly only do believe in Christianity that we only live one life. Live it well. Live it well. Have fun. God wants you to have fun. And how we have fun is loving one another. That's what this life is based on. That's what God does. And we are created in his image to reflect him. So when we're reflecting him, God's happy. By definition, God is happy. And we will be happy when we are loving one another. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. Not lovers of self, but lovers of God and other people. I was challenged this summer by Gary Thornton. He said... What is the most important number in the Bible? Started thinking of three, you know, like the Holy Trinity, right? Seven, God's perfect number for man. Man's number six. Twelve, that's a great number. Forty, all these are important in the Bible. He said, no, zero. Zero is the most important number in the Bible. Here's why. Because God says, I want all to be saved and none to perish. Zero to perish. Our mission as the church is to continue working at loving one another and sharing that love 
until it's zero. Now that may mean we work all our life and we're still not to zero. That's all right. That's what he told us to do. And we're just doing what the commander says. We're following orders. And does he not say, this is my commandment. And then at the end, he says, these things I command you. You see, you truly can't be God's friend until you're God's servant and do what he says. In other words, he's both our master and our friend, our judge and our father. Really fascinating. That's why he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No, if. It's conditional. Like I said last week, and I'll remind you again, only those who obey have faith. There is no faith without obedience. There's no love without action. You can say you love your wife, your husband, your friend, your father, your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather. But if you don't show that love, it's just in your head. Jesus doesn't want to just be in our head. He wants to be in our hearts and our hands. So in conclusion today, today is uh, Ames' first church planting Sunday. And all we want to really do is just let you know that God wants more churches. You say, more churches? Well, my goodness, I feel like there's churches all over the place. And I saw churches as I went through even this morning on my way, on my way home. But here's the reality. Out of the 250,000 Protestant churches in America... Only two hundred, or sorry, only fifty thousand of them are actually growing. So, in other words, two hundred thousand of them are either stagnant, plateaued, or declining. Get this: four thousand churches a year close their doors. Four thousand a year close their doors. This church actually is a result of remember a church closing its doors, liquidating its assets, and putting it forward. For a new church. <clears throat> There's less than half. Of the number of churches today. Than there were a hundred years ago. Less than half. The number of churches today. Than there were a hundred years ago. Per capita. In other words. If they're building new McDonald's. We need to be building new churches. If people are coming into an area. Then there need to be new churches. If people are still not being reached today, then there need to be new churches and new works, maybe even new services, new locations. Because until the number's zero, we continue to work. And so I want to encourage you that this church is a church plant. This church was planted and is growing, but needs to bear fruit And our vision is not just to be our own little thing and continue to get large and in charge, but instead expand and multiply. And if that means one day, if that means one day, we take 20 of our best people and send them out to a new work, I think that's God's design. 
I think that's the way he always does stuff. It's funny that uh, you would think, man, the churches that Paul planted, boy, those are whew, strong. That's all. I mean, that guy was, he was powerful. He was a great, great man. Listen, most of the churches that he planted that we know about, they don't exist today. Because most of them are planted in Turkey. And if you know anything about Turkey, there's about 1% Christian in Turkey. Almost all the churches are closed in Turkey today. And it's getting to where they're squeezing out even the 1%. Remember in Revelation, the seven churches? They don't exist anymore. Now, my point, we got to plant new churches. We have to have more works, more works of God. And we as a church want to be supportive of that through praying and through giving. And so I want to just connect church planting to loving one another. It is one of the best ways to love and reach new people. Truly, statistically speaking, it is. And so, in response today, I, um, I want to challenge you to give. I know you've already given your tithes and offerings and stuff. But if you, would, if you believe in that same sort of thing, um, and, and God prompts your heart. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Don't give if it's going to crunch you, whatever. It, I want you to give joyful. But if you believe in that sort of thing, aim our association, Association of Independent Methodists, which is what we're a part of. We're associated with them. We were planted because of some monies that other people gave so that we could exist. And I would just ask you, if you you do want to do that, in our response time in just a moment, I want you to come and I want you to give into this, uh, that top, that top plate there, and just in your memo put AIM, church planting. And that'll go directly to, none of it will go to us, it'll go straight to AIM, and, uh, and we'll make sure that happens. But if you can't do that, that's fine. Pray. Pray. That's a huge thing. We sometimes belittle it. It is a huge thing. And we're seeing the results of that even at our own church. This I command you. Love one another. Amen. I'm going to ask our worship